on episode 87 of the Unique on a Purpose podcast, helping you find victory in how God has uniquely created you. I am your host, Rachel Gentleman, just a regular gal trying to help people know they are called to be victors in Christ Jesus. Wife, mother, and author, Lauren Hamlet Williams, she grew up in a church environment where legalism and religion were the norm versus developing a relationship with Jesus. And when at 19, Lauren was raped and found herself pregnant, she wasted no time scheduling her abortion appointment. So take a listen and how Lauren ended up choosing life for her child, which in turn was choosing life for herself. Welcome back to the Unique on Purpose podcast, where we travel to beautiful Wyoming to visit Lauren Williams, who is a wife, mom, pastor's wife, and the author of the new book, worth it choosing life after rape which we're going to talk about in a little bit but lauren thanks for joining me this morning thanks for having me rachel excited well, well first of all we're, we're going to get into your book we're going to get into your story but i first of all just kind of want to get a little background of who lauren williams is and your jesus story so let's just jump on in, dive on into that all right. Well, um, I grew up in a Christian home, was always in a Christian school, grew up knowing Jesus. But when I, as I got older, the confines of religion really started to suffocate me. And I started to question everything. And like, why did the people that were telling me about Jesus, why did they seem so miserable and burn mm-hmm. out and angry? And God was always ready to strike me down with lightning bolts. And no matter how much I tried to be perfect, I, I always fell short, right? We're all going to fall short. But it seems like everyone else had this facade, like, I, I never fall short. Why can't you get your life together? And so mm. I found myself really just crumbling underneath the weight of that. And so I just slowly started rebelling. Um, it was like everybody else looks clear out in the world. It looks like they're doing it right. They seem happy. Mm-hmm. But what I found was as I started going down that path, the self-hatred just escalated. I started cutting. I started um, self-destructing in so many ways, became a party girl. Um, and in my teen years, you know, I had this mantra that I told myself because I was in a Christian school, um, had a Christian parents, that if I ever got pregnant, I wouldn't think twice about having an abortion. Mm-hmm. And it was just something that I had set my mind to. And um, as that life continued on through college, um, I was 18 and um, was drinking and I had I had been a little bit suicidal at times. I found myself actually fighting for this life that I hated, that I was like trying to drown in tequila, right? So yeah. hold on, let me stop you right there a second. Okay, I, I just want to know what's going through your head at this moment because you're growing up in what you feel like you have to be perfect and everybody's miserable. And so I'm going to now choose this life that I think looks fun and you're trying to have fun, but yet you're still miserable. Like what what's going on in your head here? What's going on in my head is I've broken the matrix. I am going to be miserable no matter what I do. Okay, okay. So I feel like there's something inherently wrong with me. Everybody else has found their path in life but me. Got it. Wow. And so interesting. Me, every time I came to Jesus or tried to come to Jesus, it felt like it was only a matter of time before who I really was came back out. Knowing, Looking back now is because I was putting on rules. I wasn't putting on relationship. Got it. Trying to wear a cloak that didn't fit. Mm. And so I, like that was those moments when I would struggle with suicide. Like I'm just an absolute disappointment to everybody. 
I'm a disappointment to myself. I can't be who I want to be. For mm-hmm. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Yeah. Um, that was the only Bible verse that made sense to me. Mm. Um, and so I just said, well, if this is all that I am, then I give myself wholeheartedly to a life that I hated, I guess. Yeah. It seemed like the only route to go because either way it was self-hatred. And at least if I was drinking or self-harming, then there was relief for a moment. And so I was throwing my guts up at 18 and I was struggling to breathe, couldn't breathe and um, was like inhaling, um, aspirating on the vomit. And um, I heard Jesus say, you need water. And I was like, I can't even speak. And I was like, Jesus, just don't let me die. And it was ironic to me because I was like, I thought I didn't want this life. Isn't this what I wanted was to just end it all. Mm -hmm. And I was able to catch my breath long enough to scream out water to my friends. And they just kind of laughed at me, but eventually they came and put a glass beside me and I start downing what I think is water until about halfway through that glass, I realized it was more tequila. And as I, you know, scream obscenities at them, I throw the glass back out and they're just laughing harder. Wow. The Holy Spirit say, this isn't the water that I'm going to give you. And I'm just like, but I have messed up. So like, look at me right now. Like I have messed up royally. Like you don't want me. And he was just like, I do. I'm going to give you living water and that's, what's going to satisfy you. And then that was like the moment when it was like, I would say that was the moment that I was saved. Like I grew up knowing Jesus, hearing his voice, but that was the moment when I said, I clearly can't do life without you. So wait, this is happening while you're at this party. Yes. Wow. This is in the bathroom, puking my guts up, blood vessels bursting in my face. I thought I was dead. And then I, you know, obviously lived. Yeah. And then that day I went back to my roommates and I was like, guys, I have to change. Mm-hmm. Then it started this whole romance with Jesus. And I was in between classes. I was running back to my apartment just to spend time in prayer and reading my Bible. And I was like, ah, finally. And I found friends that like were equally pursuing him. And I finally found like, this is where I'm supposed to be. And in the midst of all of that, that as that semester was coming to an end, I had this moment standing around with a bunch of friends where I was almost taken out of it. And like, no one had really told me how to hear the voice of God or that I was hearing the voice of God. Mm -hmm. And in this moment, it felt like I was almost removed from it as I'm watching my friends and we're all laughing and joking and stuff. But I just hear this almost out of body experience kind of whisper, you won't be here like this again. And I journaled about it later. And I was like, I can't explain it. I know I'm only 19. I'm halfway through college, but I feel like death is coming. Hmm. Right. I had no, I had nowhere to put that. So I just left it alone. But then a couple months later is where the book picks up um, as everything unraveled. Okay. So let's get into, into that story. So a couple months after hearing those words, what I know now looking back was the Holy Spirit. Um, I go back home. My college was in Illinois. I go back home to Virginia and um, I'm working at a restaurant and I meet this guy and um, I feel this pool, like that still small whisper saying like this one. And I see these tattoos all down his arm and they're like, only God can judge me. I see crosses and rosary and I'm like, okay, there's some background here. And I can't let go of this nagging feeling that um, that the Lord wanted me to bring this son back home. And like I, a lot of it, I will chalk up to immaturity. Mm, okay. Especially you know, when you're first saved, you're all like, I'm going to save the world. Yes. You get those highs and stuff. And there's yeah. no wisdom behind it, right? Yes. Absolutely none. 
not even a shred of wisdom. And so I found myself in places that I wouldn't normally have gone with people I wouldn't normally have hung out with. All, um, like all to try but, and, and quote unquote save these people? Yes. Got it. To be the light. And mm-hmm. I felt like because of my partying background that I could be that person. Like I'm not a prude. I'm not offended that they're smoking right now. I'm not offended that they're high or drinking. And I would, even at 19, like I would sit down and have a beer with them. Well, looking back, like, well, that was mixture, you know, (laughs) I was like, I am in the world, but not of it, you know, just having no grounding for what that would actually look like. And when you're doing all of this stuff, you're not feeling this pull of, oh, I want to get back into this. I mean, your heart was really, I really want to save these people. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, hmm, that's a good question. Um, (laughs) <laughs> think about. Um, I think, you know, that obviously there was still so many things that God still had to heal in me. And I think probably biggest temptation. And I think what set me up for disaster was that I found my worth in the words of men. I think that that's where a lot of the past baggage and immaturity and that theology, it all just kind of united into this tidal wave. I thought that I was walking in what I was supposed to be. And I thought that when it mattered, my convictions would win out, mm-hmm. you know, And at the very least, I thought that, you know, I'd be protected because I was on a mission for Jesus. And so, you know, nothing bad could happen. That was my theology at the time. In the midst of all of that, um, it's July 5th, and I'm sitting in church that morning, and the pastor's preaching the sermon on Ezekiel. And he's talking about the watchman and how the blood is on our hands if we don't warn the people. And I am convicted to a level that... I don't know if I had experienced at that up until that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm physically shaking in my church seat. I'm scared my parents are going to notice. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what's happening to me right now. But I feel this pull, like, I need to be bold. I need mm-hmm. to stop kind of just skirting around the issue. And I just need to come out with it. Like, we had had some, some talks. It had been about a month of hanging out with this guy at this point. And I mean, he made clear what his intentions were, but you know, I had shut it down every other time. Like that he wanted to, like he wanted to pursue a relationship with you. I mean, I don't know about a relationship. He wasn't a relationship kind of guy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He, uh, you know, he wanted to take me to bed. Got it. But I, I had been around those kind of people before I had been around them like this, what felt like for years up at this point, at that point, what felt like most of my life. Um, this wasn't the first time that, um, sexual abuse had come into my life. So it wasn't something that scared me. Mm -hmm. I felt like I knew how to take care of myself. So I went there that night. Like, I just was like, okay, I'm doing it. I'm going here for you tonight. And so I texted him and said, Hey, can I come over? I want to talk to you. And he's like, yeah, just you and me, like, let's have a conversation. So wait, wait, I, I just want to stop just to clarify. You're going to this guy's house who's made it clear. He's wanting to sleep with you. But you're going there to share the gospel? Share the gospel, to invite him to church. I felt like I had, you know, tried to share the gospel enough. Like, I'd asked him about his tattoos. Mm -hmm. I had kind of broached things like, no, no, I'm not going to sleep with you. Like, I love Jesus. Like, we had had those conversations. Got it. And it never stopped him from trying, but he also didn't push it. Mm -hmm. We all still hung out. He lived with a bunch of our coworkers. So, like, whenever I came over, it would be a bunch of us. They would all, you know be getting drunk and um, getting high and stuff. And I'd, I'd have like a beer or two. Not not enough for me at the time. That wasn't enough to really do anything. I guess I'd feel a buzz. But um, it wasn't enough that like I was impaired. Mm-hmm. So when I came there that night, I'm thinking this is going to be just like every other time. And I get there and 
there's a whole bunch of like there's a party going that mm. I like was was not normal. And so I was confused that he didn't tell me that all these people were gonna be there. And when he opens up the door for me, I see that he's already high and like he had a beer in his hand. So I'm like, great, he's already like I can't talk to him now. And um, I'm not going to talk to him in front of all of these people. So I was like, well, I'll just hang out and like, we'll have a moment alone. And so I grab a beer and I just hang out. And um, at, at one point I, I sit down just to watch a movie and I don't, I don't know at what point everybody left the room. Um, it seemed like everybody either went to bedrooms or they went outside for a smoke, but then it was just him and I. And then that was the night where the fight ensued and I was raped in that moment like that night, I just remember like crying out to Jesus, like, forgive me, forgive me. Like I blocked hearing his voice because I didn't want to hear the disappointment that I had become this person again. Yeah. And I was just crying out for forgiveness. Like, why did you ever trust me with this? This is all that I am. And when I, we were interrupted, a coworker came in. And so I booked it, grabbed my stuff. And I was, it was my chance for escape. And he followed me out. And when he did, he, his voice had changed. He was, um, it was just different. I heard remorse in his voice and it stopped me enough to be like, I can't deal with this right now, but like, we're fine. And so I go to leave and on the drive home, I like, I turn on the radio and that casting crown song, slow fade starts playing. Mm -hmm. It's a slow fade. When you give yourself away, it's a slow fade when black and white turn to gray. And I just realized like that's what had happened. I had turned black and white to gray. What was actually happening? Um, I couldn't see what was actually what I had really opened myself up to. Um, and so I just raged the whole night home. Like the Lord was trying to speak to me like, this isn't who you are. This isn't who you are. Like, come back, come back. But I wouldn't hear it. I just screamed at him like, this is all that I am. This is all my body's worth. And um, went home that night and, you know, was cutting and stuff. And like, that was the only way that I found relief at that time. Had um, you had stopped cutting before, like after giving your heart to Christ and this is kind of the first time you're starting to cut again, or had you been doing it the whole time? It was always a temptation because that's always how I had calmed myself down from crying. I, at that point it had been a few months. I had been what I would call clean for a few months, but it was always a temptation just right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I it was definitely opening doors back up to everything. And then a month later, um, well, in that month, I pushed Jesus away wholeheartedly. I become that monster again. I'm like, I can't do this. My mom is like, who are you? Like, I just saw you on fire. Like, what is this? And I'm like, yeah. I don't talk to me. Like, I was angry at her. I was angry at everybody, really because I was angry at myself. <laughs> and then August 2nd, I walked back into work, and I am so tired. I'd been sleeping for like three days. I'm like, something's wrong. I think I'm sick look at my symptoms and it's like pregnant and I'm like oh not me that's someone else's story yeah and that day at work this couple comes in and they prophesy over me um they're like look we don't know you but there's a shortcut coming your way but the Lord's going to make all your like your dreams like they had been talking about I was going to school for film and writing and like all of this stuff and they're like, the Lord's going to make it happen for you but you cannot take this shortcut and I just felt like, man, you don't know what I've done. But there was something at the same time. I think that we like to put people in boxes. It's either one way or the other. But so many times, like, we're multiple things at once. We feel multiple things at once. Like, I felt that God had removed his hand from me. But I also felt like maybe one day things will be different. Maybe one day what this man is saying will actually be true. 
And the second that he had said, don't take that shortcut, I knew I was pregnant and I knew that the shortcut was an abortion. Mm-hmm. And so that night I took a pregnancy test and it was positive and just raged at God all night. And then the next morning I called Planned Parenthood and made an appointment for an abortion for that Friday. Mm-hmm. And then that whole week felt like a, a battle between life and death as the Lord spoke so clear, like just the whole week was just screaming at me, like man's voice in my head, like, don't take that shortcut. The Lord sees you. He sees you. He's going to make it happen for you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Meanwhile, my whole rational mind, but I have Christian parents. They're going to kick me out. My school is going to kick me out. My Christian college is going to kick me out. How I can't be a mom. I never wanted to be a mom. Mm-hmm. I was one of those girls that, you know, I, I grew up watching movies where childbirth was painful and moms were just a step up from homeless. They're yep. like always covered in goo and mm-hmm. crazy hair. They're tired. Motherhood was not painted as something to pursue. Yeah. Even within growing up in church, like you would hear people talk like, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? They're pregnant. She had so much potential. It was like their life was over. Mm. Now that they were yes. And so it was never something that was equated with a life of greatness. Mm-hmm. Never something that was equated with a life of purpose. And so to me, it felt like the end of my life. Mm-hmm. It felt like the only way for me to have a life is to end my child's. Yeah. And so I just, that whole week, just wrestled back and forth, back and forth. And in the midst of those moments, God was giving me visions. And at one point he said, her name's Adrian. And I was like, her, it's a girl. He's like, you have a daughter. And I, I knew her name. And then I saw this vision of like this storm coming and like lightning coursing through these clouds. And the word scarlet just came. And I was like, well, what does Adrian mean? I looked it up. It means dark. And so I just saw this dark sky. And I, was like, I knew her name was Adrian Sky. But she was like this dark cloud. And like, I would just apologize. Like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I have to do this. I'm sorry that it is you or me. And I would rage at God because I felt like you did this to me. Mm-hmm. You put me in this place where I had to make this choice. You knew what I would choose. You knew this. You're the, I basically said, like, you're the one that's killing her. And then the night before the abortion, I went um, to spend the night with my sister. And uh, Did anybody know? Like, did you tell anybody at this point that you're pregnant? I told my sister. Okay. So the guy doesn't know, your parents don't know? Nobody knows. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I guess I had a friend that that night I told he helped me pick out the pregnancy test. And he stayed up with me that night just crying with me. But parents don't know, um, hadn't told baby daddy yet. That night my sister just looks at me and she's like, you, you know, you'll regret this for the rest of your life. She's mm-hmm. like, I know. The scar is down my wrist. And I'm just like. I know that this is what she's talking about. Like, I will make myself pay for it for the rest of my life. Oh, wow. Yeah. She just looked me in the eye and she was like, just think about where you'll be like in a, in a year, in two years. Do you think anyone's going to care that you have a child? And I was like, but I'm going to have to I'll quit college. She was like, there are so many other colleges. She was like, you can live here. She was like, no matter what happens, like I'm by your side. And just knowing that it, everything else fell apart. I had my sister stand by me just one person there's seriously like nothing like a sister that will tell you what is up but you know they'll be there for you that's amazing i love that she was willing to like go with me if that was absolutely what i chose Mm -hmm. she would have hated every moment of it but she was also willing to tell me like the hard truth like this isn't actually what you want i know you um 
And she gave me the power and I just said, okay, I'll go through with it. Cause I kept having these visions of like me and this dark haired little girl. Um, the, her dad was Puerto Rican and I'm blonde. So like to see these visions of like me and this dark haired girl just seemed utterly impossible. Mm-hmm. So I said, all right, I'm going to do this. And that whole night I went to sleep and I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm going to have a baby. I said, I would never do this. A life is coming out of my body. Like it was the most surreal moment. And then watching the clock tick past my abortion appointment the next morning was so surreal. It felt like at that point I was no longer living my life anymore. I, my life took a hard right and I no longer knew what anything was. I no no longer knew what what real was. Mm -hmm. Now I want you to stop right there a second because in your book, you said this, and it caught, really caught my attention. You were angry with God. You're yelling at him, and you said, why do you care about this baby's life more than mine? Explain the thought behind that. I think that, that anyone who listens to, especially at this time, I feel like the pro-life side has gotten better, but at that time, it, the pro-life argument just screamed about the baby, mm-hmm. and it cared nothing for the woman. Mm-hmm. I look at these women that are protesting for abortion. I just see scared women. Mm-hmm. Future life going up in flames because of a culture that has told us that you know, a life being a mom, like you can't pursue your dreams. You can't do anything of importance. You're just confined to stay at home and be covered in snot and strawberry jam and to wear the same clothes for three days in a row. And that wasn't the life that I wanted. I thought that I was going to do great things. I thought I was going to make films in Hollywood and write stories that changed people's lives not be a mom yeah. it just seemed so um small and so it felt like everything that when god when i felt like the holy spirit was pushing me to choose life that he was pushing me to choose her life what i didn't know at the time was that jesus was pushing me to choose her life because it was also choosing mine mm. chose my life before i ever could choose mine mm-hmm And it was his pursuit of me. Like ultimately, like that's the whole theme of the book worth it is that when I chose life, it wasn't just that I chose my daughter's life. I chose my life. Mm -hmm. I chose a life that was free of regret and remorse. It was a life of beauty and love that I could not have fathomed. I was spared from a life of shame and regret and pain because he pursued me so hard during that time of my life. Mm Mm-hmm. So how long then were you angry with God? You've decided I'm not going to have an abortion. Are you still mad at God at this point? Or are you starting to submit to him? I am submitting to his plans outwardly, but my heart was still so distrustful. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It was like, all right, I'll do this your way, but I am very upset about it. Yes. Uh, I went went kicking and screaming. Mm -hmm. It really took years. It took layers. And how he ultimately pursued me was through Um, my husband. I met my husband when I was six months pregnant and his pursuit of me was Jesus's pursuit of me. It was a Hosea story. Um, Just how he came after me and was like, but I've done this and I'm pregnant. And like the Lord told him that I was pregnant before I did. He just made the choice right then and there. Like I'm called to stay with you. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that kind of love. I didn't, I couldn't fathom that kind of man. Mm-hmm. And so every time that I tried to push him away, he came in harder. Mm-hmm. He came in loving more. Mm-hmm. And the Lord just over the years started to slowly erode those walls and that fortress that I'd built around my heart and say, 
this is how I pursue you. Mm. I had so grown up ingrained that God was just waiting with lightning bolts to spite me. Yeah. I couldn't fathom a God that saw me at my worst and pursued me and mm-hmm. said, I want you. And even in the writing of this book, you know, there are things, the Lord's so gracious. He heals us in layers. <laughs> I think to give us everything at once would be too overwhelming for our physical bodies. But even in the writing of this, there was still distrust and feelings of betrayal that I was holding on to that I didn't know until sitting down to write some of this. And he just started peeling away. And I read about that in some of, in the book, those encounters that I had, even in the writing of this. Mm-hmm. It was healing those places where I was still angry and had no idea. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk more about that, but I want to rewind a little bit because I know there are questions that people are probably uh, asking right now. One, I want to know how you told your parents and how they took it. Oh, Lord. Um, <laughs> I took the coward's way out telling my parents. I left a letter on their bed when they were taking me back to college. Um, so the day that we left for college, I left a letter on the bed. And I knew that it would be a couple days before they would get back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just waited for the phone call. And when my mom called me, she was like, hey, I have this letter here. I haven't opened it. Is there anything you want to tell me? And I was like, no, just go ahead and read really? it. Really? She wanted you to tell her first on the phone before she read it? She knew. Oh. So if you were to talk to her, the Lord had already prepared her. Oh, wow. He said that she knew the moment, she knew the night that I came home. And she heard me falling against the wall as I made my way to the shower that night. And um, she said she knew then. And Jesus just prepared her and prepared her heart. And I'm so thankful because they were able to give me so much grace. Mm -hmm. Like I I came in the letter heart. I came in so angry in that letter, Um, just angry at religion and angry that my life had turned out this way. And my mom and dad both came in with so much grace. And it totally undid everything that I thought that reaction was going to be. Mm. I had prepared myself for the worst, and they gave me the best possible reaction. It was, okay, how can we support you? How can we love you through this? Now, did you did you say in the letter that it was from rape? No, so I didn't know that it was rape. Um, oh, okay. In my mind, um, rape was you were drugged at a bar, mm-hmm. and remember it you might wake up and find someone doing something to you but it wasn't something that you were conscious for you know I'd only watched like law and order SVU right that was my understanding of what rape was it was a stranger it was in a back alley it wasn't someone that you knew it wasn't someone that you were friends with mm-hmm. and it couldn't be someone that you liked like outside of this reaction like interaction this this guy was a guy that I liked mm-hmm. he was funny he was the life of the party like he was a good otherwise a good guy I didn't have a box for that. It wasn't until later I had a conversation with my mom and she was like, Lauren, can I just ask like, how we, how did we get here? You were so on fire for God. How did we get here? And I told her how things happened. And I told her about that night and she goes, Lauren, you were raped. Mm. And she was like, yes, you were. And she was, I was like, but I, I went there. Like I knew him. She was like, rape isn't just strangers. It's not just by people that we don't know or people that we dislike. And so that just, that hit me. And I was like, I, I have no, I almost, I really pushed it away because one, I didn't like the feeling of being a victim. My self-hatred wouldn't allow me to be a victim. Mm. Um, and so it really didn't allow me. I mean, it was probably years, honestly, probably not till the Me Too movement that I confidently said that it was rape. 
And part of the reason in the book, I go into the details of that night. And the reason why I do is because for years, I scoured the internet and other books to try to find if I could find anybody that had a story like mine. Yeah. Someone just tell me what this was. And so I did that so that other women can say, this is my story, unfortunately, but at least now I know. Mm -hmm. I have peace and now I can heal. Mm -hmm. Until we name it, we can't really heal from it. Yeah. And then did you, I mean, I don't know what else to call him, but did you tell the baby daddy? Like, how did that conversation go? Oh, when I first told him, I mean, he had, so during the time that I knew him, um, a woman had shown up and had said, hey, this baby's yours. And overnight, in an instant, he became a dad of this infant. And I was so taken aback and shook by that. Um, And he was just kind of like, this is cool while he has a joint in one hand and a baby in the other. And then when the party started, he would go lay his infant down on the floor. And I just watched in horror as this baby was just left on the floor, no crib, no nothing. I saw how he was as a dad. I mean, he, to him, it was no big deal. Mm-hmm. And so when I said I was pregnant, you know, it wasn't his life ending. His life was whatever. Um, yeah. And so he was like, great, we'll do this. But then I was like, look, if, after I had chosen life, I was like, I'm, going to go through with adoption. I was like, I'm, I can't be a mom. I never wanted to be a mom. Mm-hmm. And then when I finally had that last conversation with him, he was like, you can't do this. This is my child. I was like, I have a say in this. And I was like, like, you gave me a say that night and I lost it. And it was almost like in that moment, whatever hold he had on me was finally broken. I found my voice to tell him, no, you don't get to have a say in my life anymore. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that's part of what I go into in the book too, is like, I didn't stop having a relationship with him because I didn't know what it was. I just knew something had been taken. Mm-hmm. So now I found my worth tied to him. And so in this moment when he was like, you can't give her up for adoption, all of that was broken. And I was like, nope, this is my choice now. And this is what I'm doing. And then, you know, we kind of cussed each other out for an hour. And then that was the last time I talked to him. So he didn't sign off or anything. I know I'm getting so, a little personal. I just... Like legally? Yeah. By So that would have been August or September, beginning maybe beginning of September. And then by the time that I was going through adoption stuff and actually like picking out couples, it was January, February. And when they said, okay, we have to have him sign off on this, my mom was like, no, this was rape. And they were like, it doesn't matter. Legally, he has to sign off on it. And my mom was livid. Mm. Um, but this is absurd. You Probably because he wasn't charged, right? That's why... He has still has a choice, I'm assuming? I'm, I get legally, just if we, if you know the father, you have to have them sign off. Got it. Okay. Um, and the adoption counselor was like, listen, I've had to walk women into prisons to mm. go find <gasps> father. Really? But that is the extent. So, like, to, to me, I feel like that's probably something that needs to change in our justice system. Oh, my um, word. Yeah, because like you said, so, you didn't give me a choice that night. Why do you get yeah. this choice now? Wow. I didn't know that. Okay. Sorry. Continue. Yeah, so I feel like nobody knows it unless you're faced with that. Yes. Situation. Um, and so she said, listen, all we have to do, since like I didn't have his number anymore, wasn't in contact with him, she said, we write a letter, we give it to his last known residence, and he has 30 days in, in the state of Virginia. It might be different for other states, but in the state of Virginia, he had 30 days to respond. Mm-hmm. And he didn't. 
And so at the end of those 30 days, they said legally by the state of Virginia, his rights are terminated. Oh, no way. All right. So so that's a thumbs up. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So then I had the couple picked out. Yeah. So we were moving forward with that. But then two weeks before my parents sat me down or like they were bawling their eyes out. And I was like, oh, no, what am I walking into? And they just said, Lauren, if you want to keep this baby, we'll help you. Mm. I was like, I've already picked out this couple. I was like, I can't, I'm two weeks from giving birth. I can't do this to them. Mm-hmm. We just all sat there at the counter and just cried. And my dad, who was very soft-spoken, you know, doesn't really speak. And when he speaks, it's emotion-packed and it's, you know, life-changing kind of words. And he just said, Lauren, this is the rest of your life. This couple will have an opportunity at another child, but you'll never have an opportunity to hold your first child. And when he said that, I just knew I was born to be a mom, (laughs) despite what I had told myself all of those years. And I said, okay, I'll keep her. So unfortunately, I had to go back and, you know, talk to the couple and say, you know, that I wasn't going to go through with adoption. And that was so hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, I loved them. I know that either way, my daughter would have been, she would have been set. Um, That this couple loved Jesus. They were a worship um, pastor's couple. And they would have been amazing parents for her. But I felt like, and even throughout, even the moment when the man said, don't take that shortcut, something in the back of my mind said, this story won't, one day won't be just for me. So it's not even the shortcut of, I don't want to say adoption is a shortcut, but, but even keeping her was a part of that prophecy, was a part yeah. of that story. Wow. Yeah. So I always felt like there was something bigger than I could see, and I didn't know what it was until it started unfolding. Mm-hmm. So now let's fast forward. You've given birth to your daughter. You name her, what is it, Adrian? Is that what you said? Adrian, yes. Yes, what the Lord, what the Lord share with you. And just a few months ago, you met this guy who has been pursuing you, what is going on in the midst of you've just given birth, you're keeping a child, and yet you have this guy that still wants to pursue a relationship with you? Yeah, so what was crazy is the, the day that I went, because I was trying to hide it at college, my pregnancy, and so he didn't know when he asked me that I was pregnant. I had morning sickness so bad I lost 20 pounds. Like, you couldn't tell I was pregnant until I was maybe six, seven months pregnant, mm-hmm. um, which was a blessing. But as people, one of my roommates started talking and it got to the college and they were, they were gracious. They're like, we just want to pray for you. And I was like, thanks for Lord for real Christians. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, we're not kicking you out. Like, we just want to pray for you. But I knew that I had to tell Alex, my husband, I didn't want him to find out from someone else. So I, so were you guys kind of dating or just, we were dating. Yeah. He okay. had asked his girlfriend and I had tried to be like, listen, dude, you want no parts of this mess. Like you don't even know what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. He was not, he was not having, he was like, no, I just, you know, no pressure. Let's just see where it goes. It doesn't have to be serious. So we had been dating for maybe three weeks and I went out to lunch to tell him and I was like, there's something I have to tell you. And he goes, you're pregnant. And I was like, how did you know? Who told you? Like thinking that he had already heard it. I was like, dang it. I wasn't fast enough. Yeah. And he looked shocked. He looked as much like taken aback as I was. And he was like, God just did. And I was like, what do you mean? Oh, like at that moment? Like in that moment, he oh, had wow. that moment. And he said, he's like, oh, well, I was like, did God tell you anything else? And he said that you need me as much as I need you and that I need to stay with you. And so then, he, I mean, he stayed with me, but we kind of always talked about like, well, I'm going to give her up for adoption. 
and then we'll see where our relationship goes. But that night that my parents will talk to me, I was like, I have to tell him, like, I'm going to be a mom now. Like, mm-hmm. this is what I signed up for. He thinks that I'm giving this kid away and that we'll be able to be together. And so I called him up and I said that I was keeping her and stuff. And he's just like, you know, there was something that day at lunch that the Lord showed me that I didn't tell you because I didn't want to freak you out. But he gave me a vision of you and I with a dark haired girl and three other blonde haired babies. Oh, wow. He said, I I kind of always knew that you were going to keep her and that we were going to be a family one day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, who is this guy? Like, that's all my mind. I'm used to guys that are like party guys. You know, they're with you one minute, they're with another girl the next. Like, mm-hmm. that was the life that I knew. Yeah. I couldn't, I had I was not able to process who this man was. Mm-hmm. So a couple months later, he gets a job as a pastor, and he comes back and proposes to me. Um, and so we were engaged long distance for two years. And the way I look at it, like, when the, actually the night that I gave birth, he Skyped in that night. This was before FaceTime. <laughs> so he Skyped in and like he saw her the night that she was born. So to me, he's always been her dad. Yeah. He was there. God provided him before she was even born. Mm-hmm. She never had to be fatherless. Mm-hmm. And that, that's just one of the ways that like when I look back at how God pursued me through them, like there wasn't a moment that he didn't choose us. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a moment that he said, all right, well, you chose life. Now my hands are off. Yeah. He became so intricately involved in every detail, providing for us as a good dad does. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important to share because I don't think people see that in the Lord. But now I want to fast forward. So that vision came to pass. You are now married and you have three extra children with blonde hair. And the, the six of you are living in Wyoming and pastoring. And now you decide oh, I'm going to write this painful story down and I'm going to create a book. What led to that? Gosh, Um, it was 2019 and the pro-life and pro-choice debate is escalating. It suddenly just feels like it's at the forefront of everything. Mm -hmm. I'm listening to to the arguments and I'm just keeping quiet because even at this point, um, I would say I was a, I felt too much for the woman like, I understood why they were choosing abortion. Yeah. Um, that it, they felt like it was their only way. And yeah. so I didn't feel like I wanted to get involved in the debate because I was like, listen, I feel too much for them. Mm-hmm. I was that woman. It is only by the grace of God that I didn't go through with my abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't, the pro-life side seemed so angry and judgmental and harsh and con- condemning. And I was like, this isn't how you pull women into life. And then I start hearing the pro-life side thrown around because then the rape and incest statistics get thrown in. And, well, that's only 1% of cases. And righteous anger started boiling up in me as I'm just like, we are that 1%. I was like, that's our story. That is our life that you're just throwing around as a statistic in this argument. Mm -hmm. You guys are just going back and forth at neither one of you changing your mind. Mm Mm-hmm. And neither one willing to concede on anything. And I just felt the Lord say, you have a voice in this. And I was like, I don't want a voice in this. And he had to really bring me to a place where I would be okay with, 
whatever people said about me. I, the fear of man was heavy in my life at that time. And I was not willing to step out and say anything. Mm-hmm. I wasn't even willing to go public with our story. Um, and cause I knew I didn't want to be lopped in with the angry pro-lifers and I didn't want to, I mean, obviously I wasn't for abortion, but I understood women wanting to choose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Lord also had to really solidify, like, look at your story. Like, what was, like, did I have you just choose life for her or did I have you choose your life? Mm-hmm. And then I saw, like, he really changed my heart on this, like, these women, almost like they're heading towards a cliff and they needed someone to say, stop, mm-hmm. stop going the wrong way. Mm-hmm. He chooses your life too. And when that message got solidified in my gut, then I found the courage to write. Mm-hmm. Because I never wanted to just tell my story to be used as ammunition in a debate. I never wanted to tell my story just to tell it. I wanted it to change people's life. I wanted it to change women who were heading for that cliff to turn back around to look the creator's eyes and just see the love that he has for them. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted my story to do. And so it took a couple years. And at first I thought I was going to make it into a documentary first, but I had a dream um, where Havila, who I didn't really know at the time, someone had just sent me a message, like a sermon by her, Havila Cunnington at Bethel. Um, Which is how we and, met. So if ever, like, just to clarify for those listening, that is how Lauren and I met yeah. was through Havila. <laughs> it's through Havila, yeah. Um, I had this dream in 2021 where I go up to Havila and I'm just like, hey, I'm trying to do this documentary like, what do you have for me? And she was like, honestly, like, I can't help you until you write a book. And I was like, I'm not, not writing a book. Like, I'm not a writer. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a filmmaker. I'm going to write screenplays. Like, that's what I went to school for was writing screenplays. And um, to me, a book was less than. Like, I was really snooty about it. And I woke up that day, and I was like, well, that was weird. And then my phone dinged, and I forgot that I had signed up for Havilah's emails. And it was like, something to the effect of like, you have a book inside of you, like the world needs your book. And I was like, okay, (laughs) pause. And then so like, I took time to pray about it. And I was like, all right, I'll start writing. So I started writing the first couple chapters, but then just could never finish it. Like, didn't feel like I knew where it was going, what I was really saying. I was like, I don't want to just tell the story. Mm -hmm. I wanted to have a message. And then it was, it was through when Havila said, I've started this author school. I was like, you're joking. (laughs) I'm like, this is absurd. I didn't even know that she had written books at this point. Yeah. And so I signed up for just the informational meeting and I'll be darned, Rachel, if in the meeting she goes, listen, there's some of you have callings on your life, but I can't help you until you write the book. It was word for word. She's so prophetic. It's ridiculous. Like that's amazing. So I'm just bawling, and I was like, Jesus, I don't have the money for this class. And he's like, I'll take care of it. And he did. Within a matter of weeks, the money came in. Wow. Then, you know, wrote the book. And it was through that class that, honestly, like, everything that, you know, you guys did um, for us and pulling out all of that stuff where I found my message. Mm-hmm. I it was writing for that one, that, that avatar. And I saw, I was like, what is the thing that people keep telling me about my book is your vulnerability, like, I go places that I haven't honestly read in another Christian author because we're too scared to. Yeah. We're scared of judgment from other Christians. We're scared that if we expose those places that people will think that we don't need to be in leadership, that we don't need to um, have a voice. But everyone, this is the human experience. 
And I think that we really shortchanged the church and our impact in the world because we refused to be vulnerable. And so I wrote to the level of vulnerability that my 19-year-old self needed. Mm-hmm. I needed this book at 19. Yeah. And so when I found that, I knew my why. Mm-hmm. And so that gave breath to the whole thing. And I think this generation, that's exactly what they need, is raw and real. And that is exactly what you bring to the book. The book is called Worth It, Choosing Life After Rape, written by Lauren Hamlet Williams. And I was kind of creeping on your Instagram and there was something that you said you were kind of announcing, listen, I'm writing a book. This is my story. But then you said this and it really surprised me. You said, don't weaponize our story. And you were talking about don't politicize our story. And you kind of alluded to it a little bit a few minutes ago, but go dig into that for a minute. What was your fear with weaponizing your story or what did you think people were going to do? My biggest fear (laughs) is that, oh gosh, how do I word this? My biggest fear is that pro-life people will take our story and say, see, this is what is supposed to happen. And they will not see the woman. If you read my story and not see a very scared, lost, 19-year-old girl, if you are not burdened for that scared woman, you have no business opening your mouth. Mm. Feel the burden for these women that feel like their whole life is going up in flames. Mm -hmm. They feel like God doesn't care about them, that his hand has been removed from their life. Until you feel that burden, I feel like you can't speak about this. Mm -hmm. Because any time that we do, then we're not speaking from a place of love, Mm -hmm. and then we're playing symbol. Mm -hmm. That is mostly what I feel like the pro-life move. There's, there's some exceptions. No, can I just stop you right there a second? And, and I'm only asking this because I I don't want to get off topic, but you are also from the Bible belt. Yes. And I feel like that's more of the attitude from the pro-life movement in the Bible belt. I am not in the Bible belt. So the things that you're describing and you're describing what other women have described that come from the Bible, but I don't see it. So do you think that that is, and I'm, and I'm genuinely asking, do you think that is an attitude that is more in the Bible belt than you would see maybe in Michigan where I'm from or the, the Northeast or the West? I, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I think, I think it goes one or two. I, I've rarely seen people toe. There's like a very fine middle line mm-hmm. of love where we love in truth, and but we also don't like escape out on like the reality of yeah. the situation, and I think that it's so hard for people to toe that line. Um, I think we run the risk. I mean, I don't know about Michigan, but um, it doesn't surprise me that it's Bible Belt located. But even when I get online, I mean, I don't know where everybody's from, but there's even the, but there's such a polarization. It's like we have to either be, gosh, words. Um, we either have to be yelling for women to, to choose life with our picket signs. Mm-hmm. I hate the signs. Which I hate that. I hate that so much. Like I hate, but anyway, like, yeah. Who is, who has ever changed with a sign? Yes. Thank you. And then no matter what side it is, if it's pro-life or pro-choice, like That's who's, that. who's, You're, who's little mind was changed? Nobody's. Yes. We're just in an echo chamber. Yes. As soon as we put down, this is what the Lord showed me before I wrote the book. He gave me a vision. And it was me, set, like it was on a platform, and in a, both of 
me and this other woman were in tall, like bar top kind of chairs. And I got down off of my high chair and I got knelt down and washed her feet. Mm. And the Lord said, this is what I want you to do with your message. Wow. When the, when the church can take that posture, what do you need? How can I help you choose life? Mm-hmm. Now I know that there are people and there are, there are foundations that are doing it. But there are still, like, even in the writing and the launching of this book, a very well-known podcast said, yes, Christians, it's okay to call women evil for choosing abortion. And I was like, how That's is That's really a great that? witness. Oh, my gosh. Like, how, is that what Jesus did? But there's, there's so much of that being perpetrated, like, just put out there. And it's like, you're just polarizing us. Like, instead of putting us on opposite sides, where can we agree? Yeah. We can agree that Jesus loves you. We can agree that your life has purpose and meaning. And instead of looking at this as a death sentence, what if we started viewing women and calling them carriers of destiny? Mm. Destiny wrapped up in your womb. Like we need to change our language about how we view, like even the church, like a woman gets pregnant outside of wedlock. She's the pariah. She's the scarlet letter. Mm-hmm. Just f- f- finish the sentence. When I get, if I'm pregnant, my life is over. Yeah. Mom and dad are going to, kill me mm-hmm. it's all language centered around death mm-hmm. and it's not just the church but even outside the church you hear that well if you're pregnant your life is over and that's why you have to have an abortion so it's seriously it's like it's in both when you think about it yeah yes it is and it's just it's a culture of death mm-hmm. and i feel like for us like to really shine as bright lights to show them a life that is full it's full of joy and love and that even on the hardest of days as a mom like not saying that they don't come Hard days come as a mom, and I want to put my head through a wall. My kids can drive me crazy. But even on those hardest of days, they wrap their arms around me, and there is nothing in this world that I would trade for that moment. Mm -hmm. Even my hardest of days are still overflowing with love and thankfulness Mm -hmm. and joy. I was watching, I don't know if, I think it was maybe a TikTok video, and it was a girl who was in college, found herself in a similar, similar situation as you, and in college, she thought that she was going to get kicked out of the Christian school because she found out she was pregnant. And so she went to the administration to let them know. And she was completely shocked because the first thing they said was, okay, so how do we help you graduate? Mm. It wasn't, you're kicked out of the school. It wasn't, we're going to shame you. It wasn't, how dare you? It wasn't anything. It was just that love of, okay, we understand that this happened and obviously that God doesn't choose for it to go this way but we're going to love you anyway and we're going to help you graduate and succeed in life and I thought wow how beautiful and that's really kind of what a lot of people in your life did yes like and that's what like showed me Jesus's heart for me because I was expecting lightning bolts Mm -hmm. but what I got was okay how can we help you through this and like, that's really Jesus's heart for women. Mm-hmm. When you get that, when you have Jesus's heart for women, for life, I mean, then there's no end mm-hmm. to, to how this could go. The beauty that can come from this. The book is called Worth It, Choosing Life After Rape. I'm going to make sure that I put that as well as following you at Instagram and your website in the show notes. But if there is a woman out there right now that is is just struggling maybe she is married and pregnant or maybe she is uh not married and she's finding herself in this situation what would you tell her Hmm. fear not for i have redeemed you i have called you by name you are mine Mm -hmm. through the waters they will not overwhelm you 
when you pass through the fire, you will not be burned. Jesus is with you in it all. He sees you. He's there. That still small voice is his voice. And he is pursuing you and he is loving you and he will give you everything that you need as long as you trust him and you open yourself up to him. I love that. One more question before we go. Do you think Adrian saved your life? Hmm. I mean, I reserve those words for only Jesus. Jesus saved my life. Because before let me had... let me let me rephrase that. Do you think Jesus used <laughs> Adrian to save your life? Yes. <laughs> I think that I thought that my purpose was outside of being a mom, but then Jesus showed me that all those dreams that I had, dreams of greatness and purpose and, and meaning, they didn't have meaning until I had her. Mm. So her life was really what blew meaning and like filled the hollowness of my dream. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what kind of films I was going to write. I didn't know what stories I would write until I had her, until the love story that unfolded with my husband. Like everything that God poured out was just meaning to all of those dreams. And so to, I guess also to the woman who's in this place, like God cares more about your dreams than you do. He placed them in you. And so he is more faithful to fulfill that destiny in you and that purpose and that calling than you are. Yeah. So when we leave that in his hands, like there's no end, like to him who's able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask, think, or imagine according to the power that's at work within us. Mm-hmm. That is who God is. He's not a small God. He's not wanting to squash your life. He is wanting to raise you up. And I, I really feel like the battle right now is against family and against mothers and the children and legacy. And right now, if you're a mom, you are the front lines of the battle right now. You're not backseat. You are front lines raising kids. I think another turn that happened for me and my mindset was I felt like everyone was doing important work out there. Yes. And when I saw my kids as those that I was witnessing to, those that I was ministering to, when that shift happened, why do I think it's more important for me to go speak to a hundred people and change their family's life and not start with my own family? Like my four kids are going to be world changers. They are my arrows that I'm unleashing to the gates of hell. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at your kids that way, your parenting shifts and it's no longer, I'm just trying to get through the day, but it's how can I bring heaven to earth right here in my living room? Yeah. And it's reaching the world. We have this desire to reach the world because there's glory in it. There's not a whole lot of glory of changing diapers and sweeping up Cheerios and stuff, <laughs> but really it's only the, it's the glory that God's going to reveal to, you know, when you're, you're never, you're not going to know until we get to heaven, the glory that is going to be shown because of what you chose to do. Again, the book is called Worth It, Choosing Life After Rape by Lauren Hamlet-Williams. I'm going to put the book in the show notes. Please get a hold of a copy. Uh, It's going to change your life. Lauren, thank you so much for being here today and just really being vulnerable with with your story. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Unique on Purpose podcast. And thank you, Lauren, for being vulnerable and sharing your story. Click the link in the show notes to pick up a copy of Lauren's book, Worth It. Unique on Purpose is available on iTunes as well as Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Don't forget to share, download, and subscribe. And remember, you were created unique on purpose. You are loved. 
And because of Christ, you have been made worthy. I'll see you right back here next time.